a lot of writers, especially of the underrepresented, I think a lot of us write because we know our stories are great. Our stories are funny. Our stories um, have so much meaning, but they are not being told and they are not being told by us. This is Rita Williams-Garcia, a writer who's worked to tell her stories with humor and compassion and memorable characters. For the child reader in us that we hope is out there, thirsting for these stories, wanting these stories, not just for um, our people, but I think our stories just simply belong to the shelves. It belongs to access to all. Um, And uh, when people start to get that, oh, I don't just have to uh, pick up this book during uh, February, Black History Month, or during Latino History Month, or Asian American, you know, like, like, wow, this is, this is an awesome story, and I have to read that. Young people need to see themselves in a myriad of situations. We just simply do. We have to know that we're in the world, and that what we experience is varied. We have to know that we belong in the world. And literature is the one way that we do that. I'm Lindsay Jacobson, and this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins, a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. On this episode, we're spending time with Rita talking about her book, One Crazy Summer. It's a contemporary classic that deals with everything from abandonment to unfair policing and the Black Panthers. We'll be joined by three more writers, Janae Marks, Paula Chase, and Lisa Moore-Ramey, who all love Rita's book. One Crazy Summer came out just 10 years ago. So they all read it as adults, but it stuck with them. The book is historical fiction, but the issues it deals with almost mirror current events today. Janae says, Books that directly tackle the problems kids see all around them are paramount. Kids are hearing about things like the Black Lives Matter movement and the reason why people are marching or why people are standing up against government leaders and they're understanding that this is going on and they probably do want to know more about it or know ways in which they can be part of it. And so I think it just makes sense to include it in books because I think they're having these kind of discussions amongst themselves. Let's start with Rita and her writing. When Rita was young, like very young, she was often left in the care of her slightly older siblings. Rita's sister would deliver her food, entertainment, whatever else she needed through the slots of her playpen. And one of the things she always gave me was a book. Soon after, Rita's mother taught her the alphabet. I was reading before I went to kindergarten And my sister, brother, and I, we were always having like little reading competitions. Who could read the longest, go the furthest, without messing up? (laughs) She fell in love with story. I loved the whole idea of something happening and then something else happening and then wanting to know what happened next and then seeing everybody happy in the end. I just loved going on different adventures and knowing different things. There was nothing like being able to clear my throat at the dinner table. Did you know that, you know, whatever little factoid that I could misunderstand, I was proud to crow in front of my sister and brother. 
she realized that books didn't just appear out of the ether. Someone writes them. Little Rita thought, maybe she could write them too. I can write. I know my name. I know about 10 words. I can write. I started writing stories. I wrote in kindergarten. I always had a publishing page, the copyright page. I think the main thing was always by Rita Williams. Oh my goodness. By Rita Williams. So I just knew that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see my name in print and I wanted my fantastic stories, um, <laughs> which were, oh my goodness, they were nothing to write home about. But boy, try to stop me from writing them. <laughs> and she kept reading, too. In elementary school, she gravitated towards biographies, particularly about African-American historical figures. I just hungered for something of the Black experience. Considering her interests, it was surprising when she didn't study writing in college. It had to do with a boy. I saw this young man with the world's most perfect Afro walking across campus. And I had to know where he was going. So I followed him. And so I followed him all the way into Roosevelt Hall. Roosevelt Hall was the economics department. So that's what she studied. The boy was to blame, but also... It didn't occur to me before to study writing because I've always written. I always thought, well, why would I study that? I do that. <laughs> Eventually, the boy graduated and she came around. I finally started to take English classes and I took master classes in creative writing with Richard Price, who is a film writer. He did Clockers and the HBO series the Wire. I took classes with him, and I also took classes with Sonia Pilser, who also wrote for film, but she wrote novels primarily. That really just said to me, Rita, get back on track. You're a writer. Get back on track. She published stories here and there, but she was 30 before her first book came out in 1988. Five more followed before she released One Crazy Summer, in 2010. It's a story of three sisters, Delphine, Vanetta, and Fern, from New York City. At their father's insistence, they fly to Oakland, California to meet their estranged mother. In the process, they get an education about the Black Panthers, who their mother works with. I always knew I wanted to write about the Black militant era of African-American history and American history. I thought it was so important, that moment that young people basically said, we're not going to take it anymore. Initially, she was going to write the book for teens, but then she started thinking about all of the children who were around at that time. And just starting, just looking around, seeing the pictures of kids, kids having breakfast with their breakfast program, kids on the front lines, involved in protests, not just holding up the signs, but if you ask them about the issues, they could tell you. So I just really thought, no, I'm going to do this for much younger people and try to do it in the heart of these young 
people. So it was just very important for me to have my young protagonist kind of walk into this movement, maybe not knowing much about it, but then looking around, seeing, experiencing, having their own struggles. The sisters' initial struggle revolves largely around their abandonment by their mother, Cecile. This is from the audiobook. Mommy gets up to give you a glass of water in the middle of the night. Mom invites your friends inside when it's raining. Mama burns your ears with a hot comb to make your hair look pretty for class picture day. Ma is sore and worn out from wringing your wet clothes and hanging them to dry. Ma needs peace and quiet at the end of the day. We don't have one of those. Cecile fled their home in New York for her own reasons. After the youngest sister's birth, now she lives across the country. And she's not exactly happy when her daughters arrive. Cecile dropped Fern's bag on the floor and started muttering, I didn't send for you. Didn't want you in the first place. Should have gone to Mexico to get rid of you when I had the chance. Cecile isn't the loving and caring mother they'd hoped for. She doesn't spend time with them. She doesn't feed them. Her kitchen is occupied by a printing press she uses to print her poetry. Instead, she sends the girls to what she calls the People's Center for breakfast and a camp of sorts. They quickly figure out that the center is run by the Black Panthers. We found the center like Cecile said we would. A line of hungry kids waited for breakfast, except they weren't all black. There were older teens in mostly black clothes, and Afros posted like soldiers guarding the outside. That hardly seemed necessary when a white and black police car circled around the block. The sisters had been aware of the Black Panthers back in New York City, but they hadn't been in close contact with them. They just heard about them on the news and in their grandmother Big Ma's unapproving grumbling. They get their breakfast, and then they go to class where people like Sister Makumbu and Sister Pat teach lessons on the revolution. The teachers are kind and patient. Delphine, the oldest sister, starts to make her own judgments about the group. It wasn't at all the way the television showed militants. That's what they called the Black Panthers. Militants who from the newspapers were angry fist wavers with their mouths wide open and their rifles ready for shooting. They never showed anyone like Sister Makumbu or Sister Pat passing out toast and teaching in classrooms. I started to think, this place is all right. I watched the white guys leave unharmed, laughing even. I couldn't wait to tell Big Ma all about it. Rita was born in 1957, so she grew up during the period the Black Panthers were at their height. I had a basis to go on, to kind of set the book against. But I had to do a lot of research just so that I could see things from many sides. Again, she turned to biographies and autobiographies. I made sure that I read the Black Panther intercommunal news, the newspaper, just so that I could see how they were recording their history from their point of view. That was very important for me, instead of seeing their history from 
external points of view and art. Art was a very big part of the movement, the poetry. The poetry of the time really helped to kind of frame for me a lot of what was going on, what was the feeling and the the heart and soul and struggle of what was going on. So artists like Sonia Sanchez and June Jordan and uh, Nikki Giovanni. She also looked at her own diaries from that time when she was in elementary and middle school. It really helped me a lot to read my diaries because there was an awful lot that was happening back then, a lot that I was aware of. I didn't write anything with any like gravity that really framed the moments or anything. They were just like a line or two. Like we went to hear Senator Kennedy speak and then something about his assassination and the manhunt for his assassin. And the same for Dr. Martin Luther King. And then noting that we had an assembly following Dr. King's assassination and how white kids in the school were laughing, which made Miss Dixon, one of three African-American teachers, made her cry. But Rita didn't want to make her story all about the Black Panthers. Because I have to remember, children were children. They still wanted to play. In spite of seeing what was around, witnessing firsthand a lot of injustice and strife with the authorities, with the police, children were still children. And so that kind of really helped me to create a balance to frame the child point of view. The result? is a book where the three sisters reckon with their relationship with their mother, figure out how to get along amongst themselves, make new friends, get crushes, take the stage at a rally, and test their own power. It's as much about the pain and joy of growing up as it is about the tumultuous 1960s. When the book came out in 2010... It won a ton of awards. It won the Coretta Scott King and Scott O'Dell Awards. It was also a Newbery Honor Book and a National Book Award finalist. Rita was kind of struggling at the time personally. She was about to lose her apartment. And the publicity turned things around for her. Besides being able to unpack my boxes and just know I had a home, I was eating everything in sight. Um, (laughs) I got a nice little bonus check, which was wonderful. And I think I just stuffed the refrigerator and just was on an eating tear. So when I see pictures of myself with my, like, everything is kind of normal except my belly is big, I just smile. I'm so happy. (laughs) The book became almost an instant contemporary classic. I asked a few writers why they think One Crazy Summer stands the test of time. I think the reason why this particular book to me is a classic is because it talks about so many things that are timeless, primarily friendship and family. And because it happens at such a pivotal time in American history, it's a time that I think we continue to look back upon and question and analyze and try to figure out what was going on there. A classic to me is about looking into a microscope and watching the tiny 
specimens caught in a particular time or culture. And that's what she did here. She captured the family dynamics within a time that was fraught with racial tension. I think even though it takes place in 1968, so it's technically a historical novel, the themes and issues in the book are still relevant today. That was Lisa Morvamay, Paula Chase, and Janae Marks. Janae's father had been in the Black Panthers, so she was particularly interested in the story. The first thing she noticed was how voicey Rita's writing was. I mean, her voice is just, the voice of her characters in this first person, are, they just come alive. She's very honest. I love the personalities that come out in the narrative. There's definitely like little jabs here and there that the character makes in her voice. Um, so there's definitely some funny moments. Janae says, just look at the opening. All right, so chapter one is Cassius Clay Clouds. The girls are on a plane and everything seems uncertain and scary including the rough flight. But instead of writing that it was a turbulent flight, Rita compares it to being thrown around by Muhammad Ali, also known as Cassius Clay. Good thing the plane had seatbelts and we'd been strapped in tight before takeoff. Without them, that last jolt would have been enough to throw Veneta into orbit and Fern across the aisle. Still, I anchored myself and my sister as best as I could to brace us for whatever came next. Those clouds weren't through with us yet and dealt another Cassius Clay left and a right jab to the body of our Boeing 727. She's very evocative. Janae also appreciated that Rita didn't flatten her story and her characters to an issue. Yes, One Crazy Summer is about the Black Panthers and racism, but that's woven seamlessly into the rich lives of the three sisters. When Janae was writing her book... From the desk of Zoe Washington, she wanted to make sure her characters had similar depth and dimensionality. So From the Desk of Zoe Washington tells the story of 12-year-old Zoe, and she is obsessed with baking. Her big dream in the beginning of the book is to get to compete on this Food Network show called Kids Bake Challenge, like a competition show for kids. And then on her 12th birthday, she unexpectedly receives a letter from her father, who she's actually never met because he's been in prison her whole life. And she decides to write back and they get to know each other through their correspondence. And then she finds out something surprising, which is that he might actually be innocent of his crime. So then she sort of decides to set out and find the truth about what happened to her birth father. So while it would be easy to say Janae's book is about wrongful incarceration, it's about a lot more than that. It's about Zoe's struggle with her best friend and her own passions and her relationship with her mother. I really wanted to have Zoe's story not just be only about the dads. The book really is not only about struggle. It has that in there, but it's also about, you know, joy and love and family and friendship and other elements that make people enjoy reading middle grade. It's easier to empathize with such a fully formed character. And just maybe, readers will be more open to empathizing with the character's struggle, too. And I think even if it's not doing something active, it could just be just changing their mindset. So next time they hear about a real-life story that's similar to one that they read about in a book, they might look at it a little bit differently. Like maybe they hear of another case where an incarcerated person says he's innocent. They might realize like, oh, wait, maybe he doesn't really deserve to be there. They might second guess, you know, and ask questions and not just automatically assume that what the adults around them are telling them is, is right. It kind of allows kids to come to their own conclusions and get to be a little bit more independent in their thinking. Paula Chase says she also admires how within Rita's stories, 
the characters bring nuance and diversity to the Black experience. Take Big Ma, for example. She's the girl's grandmother. She's from Alabama, and she doesn't subscribe to the Black Panther's vision. I loved that character, and I loved the way that Rita tackled her because her presence and, you know, how she feels has such a big impact on the girls, and yet the girls still got to experience their mother for themselves and and still come away with their own feeling about it. Rita says none of the characters in her book are exactly modeled on her own family, but she took lessons from her relatives to make her characters come to life. This is particularly true when it comes to Big Ma. She's older and more conservative than, say, Cecile, or eventually Delphine. Generational differences become stark. Rita says the same thing played out in her own family. She was always more outspoken than her own grandmother. While I might not agree with everything that grandma says and her sentiments about certain things, I recognize where everything comes from. She comes out of being raised by a slave, by her grandmother and great-grandmother who were slaves. So I know that what she is is what she has been handed down. And then my father is a different generation, but a respectful generation. And then I am yet a different generation from my father and yet respectful to him, even as I rebel and respectful to my grandmother, even though I say, oh, no, 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 no. So Big Ma's point of view in the book is really important. She was a traditionalist. She would have been more of a follower of Dr. Martin Luther King, definitely not of Malcolm X or the Black Panthers. So that's why Delphine gets to wrestle with those questions. Like, on one hand, I'm Black and I'm proud. But on the other hand, what are these guns about? You know, that's part of a responsibility when you're talking to young hearts and minds so that they can wrestle a little bit along with the character and know that there's kind of two sides of the story and to develop their own points of view, hopefully. Paula says when she writes her books, she's also interested in exploring why certain characters act the way they do, what motivates them and their decisions. Take her book, Doughboys. Doughboys is the story of two friends who are at a crossroads with their friendship. In the book, Raleigh and Simp, who are both 13 years old, work for their coach, who's a local drug dealer. Raleigh also has that grandmother figure in his life who pushes him to go to church and be in the choir, no matter what else he has on his plate. Simp's mom sees the drug dealing as okay. It helps her put food on the table. And it's that struggle of those two dynamics and the impact that it has on their friendship as well. When you're a kid and your world is that little tiny bowl that you're living in. And so everything feels so intense. It's important to me that Black readers get to see that little bowl of their world reflected. And it's important to me that other people outside of people of color also get a reflection of that, because I'm sure that they'll see some of themselves reflected in it as well. Paula says stories with Black characters have both the specificity of that culture, but also, of course, the broader humanity that 
any good book has. And readers sometimes forget that. We live in a thematic world, right? Everybody wants to be able to put something in a box because it helps us to understand something and it helps us to relate to something. But when it comes to the Black experience, I feel like we boxed it so much that we've forgotten that our stories are going to share so many other things with people of other races and other cultures. Paula says she writes to remind kids of that of shared experiences. I had a school visit with Washington Jesuit and I was talking about Doughboys and reflection and representation. And at the end, when I was signing the books of the students, it's an all boys school and most of the students are of color. And this one student came up to me and he said, you know, I'm really glad you wrote this because he's like, my dad's been in and out of jail, you know, for selling drugs for a while. He's like, and I've just never seen a book that talks about my situation. And I just thought, wow. That must have really moved you to hear that from a student. It really did. Just to know that he felt that my book represented a piece of him was, it just reminded me that this is why I do this. But she also sees it as an opportunity to address the adults who might get these books into kids' hands. I absolutely I'm trying to make sure that there are some adults who read this and think twice about some of the students they interact with, because I know that some of the students I portray, I know for a fact that when they are in a predominantly white environment, they are sometimes judged and there's a bias against them because there are these assumptions about this kid. And I've had librarians say, you know, I've seen, you know, Raleigh in my class before. I've seen Tay in my class before. And and I kind of understand them a little bit better. And, and I want that for those kids because I, I want them to be seen completely. Lisa Moore Ramey picked up One Crazy Summer soon after its publication while she was still writing her first book. When I was working on A Good Kind of Trouble. One of the things that I did was I went to the library and got a bunch of middle grade books out that I used as kind of guides, almost like textbooks. And One Crazy Summer was one of those books. She says books like Rita's that show young kids reacting to big social uprisings are super important. Because these movements, like the Black Panther Party's organization around police brutality, can be confusing and hard to talk about for kids. It's hard to know where you fit in, where your emotions fit in on like the range of normalcy. Are you overreacting? Are you underreacting? For Black kids, they don't have a model, I think, to follow. We're so underrepresented, and so often the representation is stereotyped or negative and in a way where just your normal Black kid never gets to see themselves. She says books like Rita's normalize the experience. They remind kids they're not alone. You're seen. There are other kids just like you out there. You're normal. Your fear and your anger and your concern is normal and justified. And I think it's important for every group to see that. It's just unfortunate that within my group, within African-American, you know, Black Americans' lives, there's just very little of that. 
The book Lisa was working on when she read One Crazy Summer became a good kind of trouble. When I first started writing the book, it was more about friendship than anything else, but it also was definitely about race and how race could indeed be factored in into this issue of friendship. I grew up with kind of a multiracial group of friends, and that was something that I thought was really cool. And then probably up until the time I got into junior high, maybe high school, like it it stopped being cool to other people who looked at those friendships as if there was something wrong with it. And I wanted to explore that. As she was writing, she was also watching the news. And the news was just horrific. It was mind-boggling to me that I could wake up and see almost every day a different case of police brutality. She worried that her book and her main character, Shayla, weren't really exploring these issues much. Partly it was because when she started writing, those images weren't really on the news yet. They weren't being taped. People weren't whipping out their phones, probably because cell phones weren't as common when I started writing the book, which just goes to show you how long I worked on it. And I realized that this girl, Shayla, is growing up in a time when she's going to see these images. And it's really important to state how it feels as a young Black person to see images like that and how it's going to impact you and how you see yourself and worry about how the world sees you. So I really wanted to factor that into the story. And she did. It's still about friendship and growing up and making hard decisions. But Lisa says it's also a primer about the Black Lives Matter movement. If someone were to ask a reader of mine, like, what was this book about? If they said, well, it was a book that explained to me what Black Lives Matter meant, I would be totally cool with that. Still, she worried whether the book would be relevant by the time it came out. Will it feel like it's dated? Because let's talk so much about Black Lives Matter. And there was a part of me that kind of hoped that that would be true. You know, like, wouldn't that be wonderful if, <laughs> in fact, someone would were to say, like, wow, we really, we've come so far. A book like this is going to be hard for kids to understand because they won't understand these problems. They don't see them. And that was so clearly not the case and continues to so clearly not be the case. It's it's sad. I mean, nobody wants their book to remain current for those reasons, but that's where we are. But Rita, she doesn't despair. Her book looked at young people's activism decades ago, but she sees even more action today. Oh my goodness, I have to say that the activism that is widespread throughout young people from elementary school on up to secondary education is just amazing. There is not a day that goes by that a young person isn't involving themselves, spearheading, putting something together, being a part of something that is greater than themselves. She says that's why she wanted to write for young readers specifically. Because the heart is still open and can be reached in a certain way. And I think young people are fearless in their passions. They don't understand why not. They have not accepted the why, the why, they, why it can't be. 
if kids are our best hope for the future. I wondered what kind of books will keep them motivated and thinking. I asked these writers what they see as the future of kid lit. And without fail, they happily said they see a more diverse library for kids than they ever had. And one that's only growing more inclusive. Here's Paula again. For kids who may be gay, for kids who grew up poor, for kids who... Any of those things, when we take that mainstream and leave everybody else out of that experience, that kid automatically is erased. And so representation is important so that no one feels erased. There are enough books to cover all of us. <laughs> Lisa says the diversification of children's literature has been growing for a long time. There was a call for diversity, but it seemed as if it was, yes, we want diversity, but we want a certain type of story within that diverse camp. And that's the stories that were getting published by and large. I think, you know, a lot of the social issue stories. And what I want to see is a continuation of that because I love those books. I'm not putting those down at all. I think they're fantastic. But I want to see a broader view within publishing for diverse stories. We need Black vampires, and we need Black fairies, and we need Black werewolves. And when we start to see more of that, I'll be really happy. I will feel really happy for the generation of Black children coming up that will have those types of stories, that if you're a kid who likes sci-fi, that there will be books for you that have characters that look like you, that it's not always the white character that's the hero. When that happens, Lisa says, it'll not only change literature, but how we look at each other in the world. I woke up this morning and did the thing that we probably shouldn't do, but, you know, got on social media and was just full of reminders that there's just so much negative stuff going on right now and so much pain out there and so many people just having a really hard time understanding black pain and i'm hoping that for those people who are having a hard time understanding that they maybe will take a minute to listen and maybe pick up a good book maybe they'll pick up one crazy summer and Take a moment to try to educate yourself and read something that will help you see that the world is bigger than just yourself. Special thanks to Rita Williams-Garcia, Janae Marks, Paula Chase, and Lisa Moore Ramey. Thanks also to Recorded Books for letting us use a few snippets of the One Crazy Summer audiobook that you heard. For more about any of the books in this episode, visit harpercollins.com. If you love the podcast, let us know on Twitter at ReadingPod, or you can head over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Visit RememberReading.com where you can learn more about our episodes. Remember Reading is produced by Irina Zhurev, and I'm Lindsay Jacobson. Until next time.